Welcome to the Anti-Racism Leadership Institute podcast, where we ignite the sparks of change and inspire a world free of racism. This podcast is dedicated to highlighting the most cutting edge anti-racist research and education for the purpose of connecting practitioners to powerful research-based approaches to racial equity. I am your host, Dr. Tracy A. Benson, and today we invite you on a transformative journey as we delve into the efforts and triumphs of those dedicated to fostering racial equity within education. All right, welcome everyone to another installment of the Research to Practice podcast. We have a wonderful friend, colleague, researcher, academic, mother, former principal, and force in the field of education, Dr. Jillian Lacerna. Welcome, Dr. Lacerna. It's very nice to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on the podcast today. So we'd like to start just with uh, you know, allowing you to, to self-introduce um, around who you are uh, for the listeners today. So if you would take a moment to introduce, introduce yourself. That's a really, can be a really deep question. Who am I? Let's see. So I think I would, in a nutshell, describe myself in all the ways you did. So um, briefly, I've been in education my entire career. I started as a classroom teacher in California, working in elementary schools, uh, moved to uh, North Carolina and continued as a bilingual literacy specialist, and then moved on to, uh, I did my undergrad in liberal studies and teaching credential in California. Here, and once I got to North Carolina, I continued teaching and got my MSA in school administration and my EDD in educational leadership from UNC Chapel Hill and took a position as an assistant principal and then as a principal of a bilingual elementary school with a two-way immersion program. Um, and then I conducted my dissertation research also in dual language programs and uh, quickly found that I was really interested in research and what research meant for practice. And I found my dissertation work, although I didn't research the school I worked in, I found it resonated with what I saw in my own school and quickly begun trying to implement changes in my school based on the dissertation research and data I had collected um, in other school sites. And so I realized, oh, I want to continue and try to publish this work and and really try to make an impact through research on, on practice. And so that's how we met is I uh, took a position at UNC Charlotte to continue exploring uh, research and also teaching adults. I feel like uh, I'm always a teacher at heart. Um, and um, so I was at UNC Charlotte for three years and um, I moved then to the education um, policy initiative at Carolina and the Department of Public Policy at UNC Chapel Hill. And I've been there just over a year and that position allows me to continue researching ed policy and um, to make very practical findings and um, suggestions for, for the field. So it's a good fit. Wonderful. So truly sort of practice the research, right? So the opposite of the practice of research, but implementing research-based practices. And we often hear leaders say that we institute research-based practices, right? Which often can be used as a catchphrase, right? If we say that, we automatically have credibility if there's absolutely no research behind what we're doing. But in your case, you implemented the research from your dissertation. So can you talk a little bit about what the findings were and then how you implemented that in practice? Yeah, I was just saying best practices, research-based practices. I feel like educators are completely numb to those words because we say them without provide providing the actual research that that you know the practice comes from. So my dissertation looked at culturally relevant pedagogy in uh, dual language classrooms, and um, really what I did was look 
through that, through Latson Billings framework, looking for academic success, um, cultural competence, and sociopolitical consciousness. So I looked for those three areas, and I did so through classroom observation, uh, teacher interviews, and lesson plan document analysis. So looking at the you know curriculum and instructional plans, and what I found was. And, and I and I limited my sites to what we would deem based on state test scores, um, schools that were having success in literacy. Um, so that was my sample pool. So I looked to see in those schools, do we what do we see with culture relevant pedagogy? And what I found was there was a huge focus on academic success um, and and a real buy in there school wide and also in the classrooms. Um, and I found some evidence of cultural competence also in the classrooms. Um, and then what I didn't find really hardly at all is uh, any work around sociopolitical consciousness, or I think what now is often referred to as critical consciousness in the literature. And so what I realized as I was back in my own school as a principal doing my, you know, regular instructional walkthroughs, I thought, wow, if I conducted my exact same study on my school right now, I would find the same things. Gotcha. Can I pause you there? Because I wanted to get into these these terms, right, that are big terms that <laughs> folks often throw out there. Like, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. the first one you said cultural competence, correct? Yes. And our culturally relevant pedagogy. Folks use this all of the time to mean a number of different things. And so can you explain for those who are educators, who aren't educators, what do you mean by, you know, cultural relevance? Like, what were you looking for? Yeah. So um, I really looked at it through, again, the um, criteria that Ladson Billings, Gloria Ladson Billings sort of laid out. And what I was looking for specifically is look, thinking about the students in the classroom. Is there curriculum, instruction, activities, opportunities for whatever is happening instructionally to connect directly to the students' cultures that are sitting in the seats? So is there a direct relationship happening between instruction and the students' cultures that they're bringing into the classroom? Gotcha. So can we get a four example? So in your study, what were the cultures of the yeah. students in the classroom and what did you see when you did the observations, right? Because it could be super nebulous, right? Yeah. But what did so, you see? Like, oh, wow, there's, it exists here. So the classrooms were pretty diverse. Um, I would say, you know, the three primary um, student groups were um, white students. There were black students and there were um, Latinx students in the classroom. Those are the majority. Of course, there were some AAPI students in the classroom as well. Um, and so what I would look for are things like what book selections are made. Um, I only looked at literacy. So what texts are being selected? Um, what representation are on the walls? Um, what books are in the classroom libraries? I would ask questions of the educators like what they do to draw connections, um, both with their students, but also for students to have interactions with each other in celebrating their cultures and really their, their knowledge, their background, their expertise that they're bringing into the classroom. Another thing you might look for is school hallways. What kind of things are posted out in the hallway or in the main entryways? And then also looking at, you know, assignments that students are doing. So what types of assignments are students writing about? What types of reflections are they doing? Are they connecting text to their own culture when there is, you know, a dissonance there? So things like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so what I heard you say is that you found some evidence mm -hmm. in several classrooms that this was, in fact, a thing. Right. Yeah. So the la you said sociopolitical. I forget the term that you used. Now, yeah. that's something that's like I, I think it's me myself. I have no idea what that means. Um, so you didn't find this. 
what what is that and how, how would you find that how what would you look for okay so sociopolitical consciousness or critical consciousness right this is um, where you are really looking for opportunities for students to be analytical about the world that they're in and recognize um, different systemic structures of oppression that exist and one bringing an awareness but two also thinking about at their actions. So like on an individual sort of student level, like having them reflect on that, but also like, what is their, what do they, what would they like to do about it? Like what, what could they see themselves um, doing about the systems of oppression that they, they recognize? Gotcha. And what grade levels were, were in your research, um, research study? Um, Three to five. Okay. So we always, you know, at least in our work, not always, but we get frequently that students are too young for this yeah. sort of socio-political thought. You know, we don't want to uh, sort of uh, muddy their minds with oppression, right? What do you mm -hmm. say to that um, for folks who, are, who sort of have that perspective that it's too young? I think there's age-appropriate ways to address many a topic, right? And students begin asking questions about different issues, about like society, different things that they notice at a very young age. And so... Um, having an interaction with students there, you know, of course, you're going to do things in an age appropriate, just like we teach reading in an age appropriate way, right? We, we have, so for an example, you have books about trains in kindergarten, you have books about trains in fifth grade, and you have books about trains for high schoolers, right? Mm -hmm. Those books look different in every grade level, but we don't say, oh, trains are a really complicated um, means of transportation and the way trains work is really complicated. So we don't talk about that in K-1 or, or second grade. Mm. And so I'll give you a, for example, it's like, um, so say you have a third grader and, yeah. you know, they're watching the, the news, mm -hmm. right? And they're thinking about the, the most recent topic around the elimina elimination of affirmative action. They're like, what is that? And why is that so bad for us to eliminate that? Because um, mm -hmm. they will have questions. I mean, kids listen, they have no idea what that means, but they know that people are talking about it, right? Yeah. How would you do it? Explain that to them in an age appropriate way. I'm going to use an analogy to help explain like affirmative action that actually is not mine. This is my friend's. I just want to be clear. This is not my analogy. This is my friend who is an educator. Um, this is his analogy gotcha. and how he talks to kids when they ask him about what does affirmative action really mean? And he says, like, let's um, go out to the track and run a race. And I'm going to uh, say go, but I'm going to have you stay here when it, your turn, you're going to stay here and we're going to let everybody else is going to start running. And then when they get three quarters of the way around, I'm going to tell you it's your turn to go. Right. So does that seem fair? Right. And so that's the analogy he uses to try to, again, take this very abstract concept to help students like understand what does this mean when they ask questions about it. Gotcha. And that's such a brilliant sort of uh, conceptual way for students to understand, right? Because they're not going to understand the whole history and oppression and, you know, mm -hmm. sort of the legacy of racism and structural racism in our society. But they do understand the concept of that having an unfair advantage yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. as a foundation to begin to build upon that as a foundation. Students do ask questions about this is the thing. It's like if we don't, we might not discuss it. That doesn't mean students are not absorbing, learning about, engaging um, what's happening around them. 
right? And also they learn what's taboo, what are taboo topics, right? Yes. So we teach them unintentionally what we don't talk about. Yes, and that's do. the real harm around all of this is that yes. as adults, we have so much trouble, especially across racial lines, talking to each other around topics of, such as racism, such as affirmative action, because as kids, we never give, were given the opportunity to develop the language and comfort with it. So I think that's another powerful aspect to sort of doing this work in, in a way that we expose kids at a young age, at least conceptually, so I can get a level of comfort. So you mentioned oh. sociopolitical consciousness. The fourth aspect that you were looking at, I forget what it was, but uh, can you sort of name what that was that you didn't see and what that means? Yeah. Okay, so sociopolitical consciousness is sort of in much writing becomes synonymous or very similar to critical consciousness is often what you, um, what people refer to now. And, and so it really means the same thing. It's this, you know, awareness of, of societal oppression and where you, where you are in that. And so what I did at my school, what I noticed is that this was something that was absent. And so we really engaged in a lot of work to embed social justice, explicit standards in our instruction. Mm. So as a response to this, like, oh, if we, we, you know, you have literacy objectives, you have math objectives, you have science objectives, and that's what teachers are teaching to when they plan their lesson plan and when they engage in instruction, um, because we have learning goals. And so when we looked at there are, you know, social justice standards. Um, and so embedding those into the lesson plans um, really makes an impact in terms of like whether you're teaching that or not. Um, and then you begin thinking like, oh, it this is one of my objectives I'm teaching to. This is going to change the text I select. This is going to change um, kind of the Socratic seminars I'm going to plan. This is going to change, you know, writing assignments we might have. And so um, that was a really kind of really systematic way to try to make sure that we weren't ignoring this entire element of culturally relevant pedagogy um, in our instruction. Wonderful, wonderful. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask the question um, that you no, know, so what you see writ large right now is like anti wokeism. And if someone's listening, they're like, oh my gosh, this is the woke curriculum. Like you're indoctrinating our kids, right? That's the political atmosphere we're in right now. And the, the antithesis and the counter to that is that how do we prove that this is actually good for kids? What are the student outcomes that we would look for amongst these students to say that you know they didn't have this before, but now we've added it to the curriculum? And why? How do you measure that it's good for them? that it's beneficial mm -hmm. to their learning. So I think, you know, when we think about the standards, I'm just going to read you an example of a standard, right? I know about my family history and culture and about current and past contributions of people in my main identity group. That doesn't seem too, you know, scary, but how valuable is that for students, right? Um, and that means all students, every group of students that's in the school, right? Um, here's another example. Um, I like knowing people who are like me and different than me, and I treat each person with respect. So the, these are just, again, I just read, you know, two of the standards um, from, this is from the social justice standards. Um, it's really, it's, a, it's they call them, it's a learning, a, sorry, the learning for justice anti-bias framework. And it's put out by Learning for Justice. So I don't work for them. <laughs> <laughs> but you could get a good plug in there for as, as a yeah. resource. And, and and when you say it, when you like that, it makes sense. But when you get into the political realm, right, yeah. individuals who just, you know, are functioning out of fear, like you're indoctrinating people, you're sort of feeding folks 
what's bad about America and, and anti-white and anti-American. And that's, the, that's the, the theme. But when you read the standard, it makes sense. Basically, and also up against the backdrop of residential segregation, a lot of our students outside of school aren't in these highly diverse, racially diverse environments. They're yeah. the only space they get to interact with each other outside of you know, watching TV and getting indoctrinated with the news and sort of public media mm-hmm. is in school. And so we need to be more purposeful around bringing folks together to understand difference, I think, is, yeah. is the foundation of the purpose of social justice education. Mm-hmm. And so I want to transition to a current research uh, project yeah. that, that you're working on, which I think is awesome in a, number of, in a number of ways. And I think the new title is Bias in Student Recognition Award. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And I want to sort of frame this around that for those who aren't educators, but and for those who are that, you know, PBI, positive behavior support and incentives is all the rage, you know, was it the rage five years ago, it's still around. We want to have positive mm-hmm. incentives, not just a, a system where we have consequences for misbehavior, but we want to reward positive behavior. And so that as an umbrella, you know, understanding that 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 is positive for students within school, folks have bought into that. Mm-hmm. And also within that, we need to recognize that bias does work its way in to advantage some students and disadvantage others. So right. first, can you tell us about like what even drew you to do a research study like this? Like why would you even think that this was worthy of study? Um, a couple things, right? So um, I feel like my entire career I've seen, and not just associated with, you know, necessarily positive behavior incentives, but think about like um, awards that are given like at the end of the year to students. I feel like this has been around again since the time I initially started teaching. Awards that are given at graduation ceremonies. Students are left often wondering, you know, how did that student get that award? Was I supposed to apply to that award? What was the criteria for that award? You know, how would I would have loved to earn that award or I, you know, this is an award for, you know, science and and I'm I love science. So I wonder how I could have gotten that. Right. There's a lot of unknowns for students and how awards are given or how recognition is given often. Right. So this is something that had been in my mind, I think, as an educator for a really long time, um, just around this idea of how students are selected. Do students understand how, you know, who's selected for an award and and who's not and what's the criteria for an award that you might achieve? And so I think you have this everything from, you know, in the classroom to larger awards. And, And I think that, you know, bias is present as much as, you know, as individuals, we may try to, you know, recognize our own biases that we have and try to, you know, do, take action to try to um, address those. Um, bias can work its way into just like we know about discipline, which has been well-researched and well-written on, right? Uh, we talk about the gap in um, student office referrals, um, expulsions, ex- suspensions. And when when we think about that, we see a real disparity in like the number of white students who are referred when you compare to the number of black students who receive office referrals or Latinx students who receive office referrals. There's a huge discrepancy there. And so I thought, I'm in my experience, just anecdotally, this is something I've noticed. I wonder if this is the case. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. And that, that attaches to my experience as very, very personal to me as well. When I knew that you were doing, I was like, oh my gosh, absolutely. Because I remember in my history, I was bust. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was part of the 220 program, which was a program to uh, desegregate the suburban schools, right? So we were the black kids bust to the suburbs. And I noticed from the time I was there from third grade all the way through high school is the same group of AG, you know, academically gifted white kids 
every year that would get the rewards, get the awards. And we'd sit in the audience and same train of white kids from, from third grade all the way through high school from the same group. And I saw that maybe once in a while there would be a kid of color, maybe, but the criteria was definitely exclusive to, to be rewarded, you have to be one of the privileged white kids in the, on the AG track. And that's the only thing that was rewarded. And then flash forward to when I was a principal, I noticed that a lot of the graduation rewards in my school that I led was the same thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is early, early 1990s when I was, um, uh, or actually early 1980s when I was in elementary school, flash forward to, you know, 2010, it was the same phenomena. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things I didn't look at, but I think is an area that really would be interesting to study is this more of an qualitative perspective is what is that impact that what are what are what's being reinforced to students as we watch sort of recognition over and over of students who look a certain way? Um, what is the impact on students of that? Right. So um, what does that say? Again, unspoken, but what are what is sort of reinforced? And again, this is something I think would be fascinating for a future research project, a qualitative study um, where you'd really talk to students about, you know, what they notice about awards and recognitions, because you're sharing your story. You noticed. You know, so I think this is something that would be really interesting for, you know, a future study. All right. Signing up the future study, the impact, right, of, of student recognition in, the, in racial bias. I know from my feeling, I just feel like black kids weren't smart. That's what it said to me. Like mm-hmm. we were never going to be the academically gifted students. Brown kids weren't smart, right? You had to be white or Asian uh, to be considered one of the smart kids. And the black kids, especially if you come from Milwaukee, you will never be a smart kid, mm-hmm. right? And I remember that very distinctly, but it became normal. Like, because at the time you can't ingest what that really is. I'm just like, okay, well, all right. Heather yeah. again. Yep, Nora again. Okay, every yeah. year, same kids. So, talk to us a little bit about the the study. So, what was what was the um, the sort of the nuts and bolts of the study? Yeah, so the study really looked at across two different school sites. Um, you know, recognition awards that were given um, over throughout the year to students for scholastic achievement or for excellence in um, in, in scholastic activities for uh, you know a given period of time. So it. Uh, recognized students um, across two sites that had similar systems. Both were, you know, PBIS schools. And so um, this was just part of a um, recognition awards that was offered uh, to students for, you know, different things. One school in the findings, which did make a difference, one school had much more clear criteria for scholastic awards, different things you might be looking for, where the other school did not have as much of our criteria. And, and this really made an impact both on, I think, some of the percentages of um, students that were receiving awards, but also especially on the qualitative information that teachers would say about students um, receiving the awards. So again, having that criteria, and in fact, that's one of the implications, is it, does, it did seem to make a difference. Mm, okay, so, so what did you find? Yeah. So um, across, you know, in um, I'm just going to pull up. So because I don't have all the numbers memorized, so I just want to be able to um, absolutely let you know. (laughs) Okay, so um, for scholastic awards in in one year, white students made up 54 percent of the school, but received 73 percent of the scholastic awards. 
in year one and made up 55% of the school in year two and received 75% of the scholastic awards. Now, in the other school that I mentioned had stronger criteria, had a much closer percentage um, in year one, but white students were still slightly overrepresented in year two, but not as much as the school without the specific criteria for scholastic awards. And then when you go down and look at the rest of the data, I'll just, again, concentrate on um, the first school without the criteria. When we look at Latinx students, they made up 31% of the school, but represented 15% of the awards. Um, and that's consistent, give or take a few percentage points in both years. And Black students represented had a small percentage of the school, um, 5%, representing 4% of the awards. And then in uh, the school with set criteria, um, they have a similar, again, Latin Latinx students making up less of the award percentages than the population of the school. And, um, and, and you see that throughout both years. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I'm not going to ask the foundation question. Is there bias at play? Absolutely. Right. Either in the system and the recommendations in the criteria that it's selecting out for overrepresentation of white students. And I think you have some granularity in there about the type of awards, the effort or achievement, right, awards. So what did you find in those two areas? Yeah, so we really looked at, it, it was really broad, right? So there's nothing about these awards that say you have to have a certain, um, you know, uh, GPA, or you have to have a certain, like, um, you know, mark on your report card to earn one of these awards. It's, it, it, it was very open, right, at both schools. Um, uh, at the school with some criteria, you know, they really talked a lot about wanting to give the awards for hard work. And you see that play out in what um, teachers say about students. So, um, in that, that school, you see a lot more awards around hard work. Um, across the board. So uh, 96% of um, white students who received awards had a comment about hard work, 87% um, of Black students at the school, and 92% um, at, at school at, uh, of Latinx students, right? So you have these really high percentages where when you look at the school without criteria, you don't see that consistency across. In fact, you see 45% of white students who received awards um, are noted as hardworking, 17% of black students who received awards noted as hardworking, and 39% of Latinx student awards. So you see more discrepancy across than you do when you kind of put hard work as something that you're looking for and re to recognize. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we have to speculate, right? Because we say these are sort of public awards, right? <laughs> that students receive individually, but it also is recognized throughout the school and other student experience by proxy who's getting which awards. Mm -hmm. You know, so speculate what could be the possible effect on the sort of the socio emotional development of students, the psychological development of students mm -hmm. when this innocuous pattern continues over time. Yeah. I think it's exactly what you described. And, you know, um, to be honest, I've seen kids ask, again, this is throughout my career. Not This is when I was a teacher. I've heard kids ask, you know, why didn't I get an award today? I want an award today. And sometimes it's like, well, you work really, you know, we work really hard and get an award. And then the next time next year comes around and, and no award again. Um, you know, and so I think that um, it certainly has an impact. Right. And whether that is, you know, like you mentioned, you might not be able to verbalize or precisely, you know, put your finger on it. But there is definitely, I think, an impact for students when they what 
we, we learn that all the time when what we reinforce, right, when we recognize, then often this you, we get, you know, students who want to replicate that recognition. And this is just small things, even a, even a thank you, even a, I appreciate the way you did this, even a, you know, small word from a teacher re, can reinforce behavior, positive behavior. Likewise, teachers can reinforce, you know, behaviors, uh, non-teacher pleasing behaviors. And so uh, and when we think about it in terms of awards, graduation awards, um, any type of kind of school-wide classroom awards, we are reinforcing something for kids every time we do it. Um, so, uh, you know, I think what I would encourage here is um, for pra- practitioners and for educators to be very aware that every, just like all this attention, we focused in on discipline and negative consequences. The impact of what we do to recognize students also has an impact, not only on the student you're recognizing, but on the other students as well. Gotcha. Yeah, there definitely is an impact, and it's likely negative to those who are left out or Mm -hmm. constantly out outside of sort of the reward system or severely underrepresented. And so I want to frame it around an example that I often use in one of my experiences when I was supervising a um, aspiring principal at a school building. And then I want to get to like what then to do, because this is an example of like what I don't I think is like not to do. Right. So I was visiting a school a school building doing a side by side observation with one of the um, uh, the graduate students who were in the principal licensure program and my um, uh, supervision of instruction program came to her school. We we're walking down the hallway. And I noticed that in the school is very racially diverse, right? I didn't have the exact demographic, but I'm like, this is a very diverse school, right? Uh, more diverse than the school that I worked in. And so I was walking down the hallway and it was, I remember it was October. And we're walking down the hallway and I passed by their PBIS student of the month board. So they had one student from each, or two students from each grade, because it was a middle school, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, you know, had the, and they had a picture up there and they're all holding their award. And I walked by and I looked at, you know, August, September, and I saw October, right? And I walked by and I noticed just at a glance that all the students were white. Uh, and I had to stop for a minute and I went back and I was like, huh, all the students, because it reflected my experience as a student as well. I was like, they're, they're all they're all white. But and when I look around this building, you have like Latino students, you have Asian students, you have black students, but not a single student on that awards board is, is of color. And so I asked my, my principal intern, I was like, what? What's happening here? Have you noticed this before? And she had noticed. It was just sort of sort of innocuous. She passed by that board all the time. I was like, well, I'm not going to address it with your principal, but but you can if you choose to, right? Mm-hmm. It depends on your relationship with the principal. And so she chose to, right? So I didn't press her to do it at all. I left the building. Um, and she talked to the principal. She said, the principal, of course, white woman, started crying, didn't realize that she felt so guilty about it, right? And so flash forward, it was the end of the semester, and it was our mm-hmm. second side-by-side visit in December. I went back, walked by the board again, and I noticed that the November student of the month was all students of color, right? And so you have white, 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 all students of color, right? And I'm like, oh no, did we, did we do any sort of criteria analysis? Did we reflect on how this system happens? It was like, nope, let's just pick all students of color and that's gonna remedy the problem, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, I was like, that's what's not to do, right? Knee jerk. Let's put some color up there rather than like, let's investigate why this happened, how it happened and mitigate the system. And so I'd say as a framework of like, we probably don't want to do that, but how do you actually uh, apply your findings to a principal that notices that this is a pattern in our school building? You know, it's so funny you say that because I think about, again, going back to discipline, right? And, And same thing, when we have disproportionality in student discipline, 
the answer is not just like, oh, we'll stop sending anybody for anything that happened. No, it's analysis of the system. It's really thinking through things. So a couple of things. One is just like run the numbers, right? So like, look at your graduation awards that you give for the last two or three years. You know, look at, um, you know, any school-based awards that are given out. Um, you know, kind of take a look at your data uh, and and re- and then have time to reflect on it, right? So take a look at it, spend time reflecting on it. And I think there's a couple of key takeaways. Um, one is that unconscious bias is, is more likely to seep into your work when you're under like time pressure. And your, you know, educators are trying to get awards issued, wrapping up, you know, when we think about those time periods, graduation, end of the semester, end of the quarter, those are high stress, high demanding time periods. And so when we're also trying to get report cards done and do all the parent conferences and make sure students have the the, the things they need to like complete the course or like make up any missed work. And at the same time, teachers are issuing recognition awards or deciding who's earning, you know, awards for graduation that time pressure can make unconscious bias even more likely to occur because we're less likely to follow like systems or criterias we have in place or spend the amount of reflective time we really should be spending in in, in um, issuing awards. And so those unconscious bias kind of, even, you know, educators who want to be cognizant, it becomes more difficult when we're under time pressure. Um, and so I think that having an understanding about that as an administrator to say, like, you know, maybe have off-peak times for awards if you want to do those in, in in your school building. Maybe thinking about, okay, maybe we decide sort of graduation awards, those that we can early. So we're not trying to do this right at the end of the year when people are relying on lots of things for kids to get promoted to the next grade, to uh, meet with parents who might need something. So, so having that recognition of time. And then the other thing I think is really thinking through as not just the administrator, but the leadership team of any school to think about um, what is the purpose of awards? Why do we want them? What do they do? What do we want them to say? And then if you have answers to all those questions, um, what do we want criteria to be? Like, what do we really want the criteria to be for awards? Um, You know, how can we think outside the box, outside of the typical systemic nature um, of awards to think about ways to recognize students in in, um, really clear, structured capacity? So it's not, you know, we create the criteria we want for awards if, if you still find that there's a real meaningful purpose in giving them. So um, I think that it's really not a quick fix. Like you said, it's not an October to November answer. <laughs> it's more a, well, I would say it's more like how we think about systems change. When we think about, you know, strategic planning, it's more of that type of an endeavor, right? And to really t- be willing to take it on, you know, when looking at if your data shows that this is what's happening, be willing to take on that strategic planning, that systems change, um, which can take you know, a year um, to really create a new system. (laughs) Right. I heard you say it concisely like three things, but sort of 
three things and then sort of cycle. I heard one, sort of slowing down is mo what's most important, being very intentional. If we don't have a behavior uh, positive incentive system, slowing down, discussing the purpose, why, what are we looking for, what does it do, being super intentional, not that, oh, we did this at my last school, I want to do this here, and let's just okay. create a system. Being more intentional around the meaning of it and what we intended to do, because we are teaching students, we are impacting students' psychosocial uh, well-being when we do give awards. So slowing down and creating a very intentional system. And when we deploy it, right, deploy with all best of intentions, right, if you don't have a system, monitoring the data, right, because we could have the best of intentions, right? However, it might have disparate impact when it comes to the point of actually assigning of rewards, right? So paying attention to the data. And if we do already have systems for rewards, pulling the data, like if you've never looked at data before, let's take a look at who's getting rewards and adjusting accordingly. And then something else I heard you say was that at the point of when teachers are deciding who gets the reward, put it at a time that's not high time crunch, high stress, right? Because that's when split second decisions often result in either racial bias, gender bias, you know, social, uh, social um, economic bias can creep its way in because it's happening really fast, right? But the cyclical part, part is deploying implementing, slowing it down, and then constantly looking at the data to make sure that our criteria and our practices aren't producing the disparate impacts that we want to avoid. Right, right, exactly. It sounds so simple when you put it like that. <laughs> Simply complex, but we know the, the job of a principal that we actually physically do not have that much time. Right. Um, and we're also under high stress. So it really takes a concerted effort to carve out time in your schedule and do yeah. it with intentionality. So the, yeah. the, the last question I have for you is around what is next? Like, what are you working on now? What is the research agenda? Where, where are you moving forward? What are you doing? Uh, that's a really good question. I um, at work am engaged in a couple of really interesting research projects. So we're looking at how principals are trained across the state and also doing some work around uh, literacy professional development and the impact that has both in terms of um, in the classroom, but also decisions we make about going back to that systems change, how things are implemented make a difference. So, you know, what are differences in the way that, uh, you know, literacy programs are administered? I think that some of my most recent work, I did some work around a critical consciousness, professional development in dual language programs. And thinking about why is it what we've been doing doesn't seem to be working, you know, really kind of looking at um, how can we create cultures of critical consciousness so that our, you know, when we learn about um, critical consciousness or equity in a professional development session, it's not isolated to that session. How do we create and foster really a culture of critical consciousness across a school. So that's some really exciting work as well as thinking about, you know, teachers who really are engaging in trying to um, promote critical consciousness in the classroom, who are really engaging in trying to use social justice standards. What has their experiences been? So a project looks to understand like the lived experiences of teachers, like you said, in this period of pushback, what are their experiences when they try to implement this in the classroom and uh, both, you know, what they've seen from students, what support they've received from administration, and then also um, what, what they've heard from parents. 
Uh, oh, that sounds exciting. So. That sounds like exciting. Oh, can't wait. So for those who've been inspired, right, because I'm inspired by Dr. Julian Lacerna in terms of her work. I love it. I, I, I look forward to reading everything in which you publish. Um, if they wanted to know more, like how do we reach her? How do we get in How do we follow her work? So for those who are inspired and want to learn more about you and your work, what, 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 what do they do? How do they reach you? How do they follow you? Well, you would... Um... I'm not a huge social media person, to be honest. So I got off of, I guess it's called X now, right? The new Twitter, mm -hmm. whatever that is. Oh, yeah, I know. right. You can, uh, through Google Scholar, if you search for Jillian Lacerna, you can find my publications there. Some of them are not behind, you know, paywalls. Others are, and which is a whole other uh, issue we can talk about on another day. And, um, you know, also, of course, you can look for me at the Education Policy Initiative at Carolina um, in Public Policy. Awesome. This has been a wonderful conversation. I could like it's talk to you for another hour, right? About your research and your past research and your agenda. You know, no, yeah. this is awesome. Thank you so much for spending your time this afternoon with us. We really appreciate all the work that you do and all the work that you've done. Thank you very much, Dr. Lucerna. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Anti-Racism Leadership Institute podcast. Remember, fight against racism starts with each and every one of us. Together, we can create inclusive environments in our schools that celebrate diversity and empower all students. For more information, visit our website at antiracisminstitute.com and subscribe to our channel. Join us next time as we continue to shine a light on the champions of change. Stay inspired, committed, and let's make a difference together.